You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Good morning. We are in the second week of a new series entitled No Room for Mild Approval. On behalf of this series, I have a very narrow and specific agenda. And I think it's good to tell you so you don't think that I'm trying to hide it from you. I know some might say this agenda that I have is unrealistic and perhaps naive, but I'm going to lay it out there anyway. This is what I love, and this is what I pray. For those in this room considering the way, the way of Jesus that we talked about last week, to take a step of faith in the direction of Jesus, meaning if today in this room you've been dancing around the edges, you've been coming week after week, perhaps you started coming because a family member made you, right? And some of you in this room, a friend simply encouraged you, said, look, we've tried this, you got to come. And this happens more and more, especially in the next service, like kids came and the kids invited you. It doesn't matter on behalf of any of those, if you've been coming and you sense over a week, a series of weeks or months, you sense there's probably more to this Jesus thing than I originally thought. Perhaps in the room, you, you periodically get emotional. The problem is you got one foot on the brakes, like, like two feet on the brakes. You get right up to the edge. I just want to pray. I've been praying, and I would love if you would consider taking a step into the direction of Jesus to fully embrace the relationship with the way of Jesus. Some of you today might be your first time here, maybe second. And you don't have both feet on the brakes. You're not even in the car, Right? Um, you're thinking, oh, great. The people that brought me, people that told me to come, they said, this place is friendly and kind. And right out of the gate, this guy, Tim, that's up front, he's telling me his motives. He's telling me what's behind the curtain. Well, let me clarify. The way of Jesus does not mean being a good person. It doesn't mean becoming a strong American citizen. It doesn't mean that you just believe in God or believe that at one time Jesus lived. It means that you decide to become a follower. You surrender your life, and you follow. Just like the four guys that we looked at at the end of Mark chapter 1 last week, as Jesus walked around, and he sees these fishermen. He says, hey, I'd like, to change, I'd like for you to change the way you think, and I want you to trust, believe, and, and then come and follow me. In other words, it's someone that changes their mind. It's the Bible word called repentance, meaning change the way you think about yourself, about God, about life, about everything. Line it up with the teachings of Jesus, and then you trust him. Meaning you surrender my life, my marriage, my relationships, my response to authority, my financial world. I surrender all of that to the teachings of Jesus, to the life of Jesus, to the way of Jesus. So I want to do everything I can. And some of you I know might think, well, it's not much. Well, I'm going to try to explain so that those in the room with one foot on the brakes, both foot on the brake, both feet on the brakes aren't even in the car, maybe on the edge. You've got questions. The goal of this series has been to take a deep look, to consider the way of Jesus. And I know some of you in this room, the reason you think this isn't a realistic goal on behalf of this message series is because you're not a follower of Jesus and there is a reason that you have for not being a follower of Jesus. Meaning if you and I were to have an opportunity to have a conversation around a dinner table. 
you could say something like this to me because we live where we live. You'd say, Tim, I know God is great. God is good. Let's thank him for our food. But this whole concept of surrendering my life to Jesus, I've got some struggles, some reasons that I can't do it. Uh, some might say, uh, but look, look at all the stuff going on in the world. There's so much suffering. I, I just don't know that I can coincide with suffering and a God that loves me and loves the world. And I would tell you, for you, that's an obstacle. And I would tell you, that's a legit obstacle. It's a legit reason. I don't want you to ignore it. You got to pay close attention to it. I wouldn't tell you that's stupid. I'd say, okay, let's talk. Others in this room, you've got a different issue. You might say, well, I've known too many Christians. Why would I want to become one? Like my life is more together than theirs. And I want to say, I get it. You're probably right. In some areas, some fashions, like you may have it more together. This is a legit obstacle. It's a struggle. And you're saying, I, I won't do it until I get rid of this obstacle. Others in the room might say, well, Tim, I was raised in a completely different religious tradition. The problem with Christians, they think they're the only ones that are right. Everyone else thinks, they think everyone else is wrong. And I want to tell you that that's legit. It's a, it's a struggle. It's an obstacle that you've got. It's valid. I get it. I understand. Some might say, well, Tim, I'm starting to believe, and this is big, but the people I love, they didn't believe. They don't believe. My family, my, my parents, my spouse, my grandparents. And Tim, if I embrace Jesus, I'm admitting that the people I love and respect are wrong, and I don't know if I can handle it. I want to tell you, if that's you in the room, it's legit. I understand. I get it. It's a difficult obstacle. Some could say this. Tim, the whole notion of someone paying for my sin, I don't buy it. Or how about the sins of the world? Like paying for the sins of the world, I can't wrap my head around it. And I get it for you. That is an obstacle. It's valid. I understand. Something that you need to think about and consider. Or how about this one? Lots of people think this. Tim, I don't really care. It's not that big of a deal. The reason I'm not a Christian is the same reason you're not an astronaut or you don't stand on one leg all day. I'm not interested. No dig bill, right? Some might say that. The reason I press in on all of these obstacles is because I have friends that embrace each of these that I've just talked about. And for them, this is a reason, a legit reason that they're struggling with becoming a person of faith. I want to let you in on a secret. Uh, one of the special things that's happened in the last close to, I'll say 15, 20 years of my life is God has given me and the ministries that I've been a part of, the church I've been a part of, a chance to see adults come to faith in Jesus. It's kind of been unique. Today, you're going to see six go public, like throughout the day, six adults. And something I've observed on behalf of the adults and the obstacles that they have and the struggles that they have, ready? Very few adults embrace the way of Jesus after They've removed all the obstacles. Instead, more often than not, something happens in their life. And what happens is eventually those obstacles, those legit reasons, they start to shrink. And they carry the smaller obstacles with them on the journey with Jesus. They still have them, but just not so significant. And when I say something happens, here's what I mean. There is a tragedy, there's a death, there's a divorce, a pending divorce, a wayward child, a job loss, an addiction. And all of a sudden, they find themselves on their knees, arguing with God, negotiating with God, 
pouring their heart to God, a God they weren't sure they wanted to surrender to, a God they didn't want to believe, and suddenly they're starting to believe. And guess what? The concept of Jesus moves from a category to personal. And those obstacles that we mentioned, they don't go away. They just start to shrink, and they're less significant. Or something else significant happens, like, let me tell you this, happens to many in this room. You start going to church. You start reading your Bible. And this event takes place, and you absorb truth. You soak it in. You sit and listen. And this truth kind of goes over you. Jesus made the statement, you'll know the truth, and truth will set you free. Your obstacles aren't gone. They just get smaller. And you bring them with you on your journey to following Jesus. Um, on behalf of this series, No Room for Mild Approval, last week we talked about the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus looks like this. It was in Mark 1. It's about a person. Meaning the, biogra- the biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all about a person. We see it in Mark 1. It's about the person of Jesus. It's not just about a person. It's about real time and space. Like real events, real dates, real cities. It's not just biographical, it's historical. That's real time and space. It's about a much larger conversation, the way of Jesus. Meaning what we're reading in the New Testament, the gospel accounts, they don't just stand on its own. It's like the second part of the conversation. The first part of the Bible is the first part of the conversation, the Old Testament. Meaning there is a much larger backstory that is getting fulfilled when the way of Jesus comes into the story. And it's not about your external life. It's not about religiosity. It's not about routine. It's about the inner life. That's the way of Jesus. Meaning, it's what we talked about a minute ago. It's where Jesus moves from category to personal. So last week was the way of Jesus. That was Mark 1. Today, if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at Mark 2. I want us to look at the depth of Jesus What is it about the depth of Jesus that if you in this room were to embrace it in spite of your obstacles, what is it about the depth of Jesus you have to embrace that will cause the obstacles to shrink, to feel less significant, and to be put in proper place? At the end of Mark 1, as we saw everything that unfolded, um, Jesus is teaching, uh, he's performing miracles, and there's an end result. Let me show you the end of chapter 1, verse 45. It's the last verse. Jesus went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he stayed outside in lonely places. Yet, the people still came to him from everywhere. So people are starting to show up in droves. We're going to start to see the first dimension of the depth of Jesus in the next verse. Chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the city, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers, there's no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. That's the big deal. On behalf of the depth of Jesus, the first dimension, the first layer that I want us to look at that you must embrace in order for obstacles to slowly shrink is this, what Jesus teaches. So far, when you read the text, everything makes sense. Like there's a real time and space, a historical place. It's called Capernaum. You can still find it today. And on behalf of the way of Jesus still showing up in this chapter, you see it's historical. It's about a figure. It's about Jesus and his teaching and his healings. But let's press in on the teaching aspect, what he taught. It's the core of his ministry. How else would people draw a connection between Jesus and God unless he tells them? As a matter of fact, John chapter 1 
says this, in the beginning was the word. That's the title for Jesus, the word. Wouldn't it be great to be Jesus? You don't have to memorize the Bible. You just say it and it becomes the Bible. Pretty special. And if you think about it, we're lucky they didn't write every word that Jesus taught down. You say, Tim, don't say that. I'm not. John did at the end. He said there are libraries that could not contain all of his writings, but we have enough that we need. That's the gospel accounts. And let me tell you about me and teaching. I can teach the Bible, but my words are not inspired. My words are not inerrant. There are times that the flesh gets in here, but every time Jesus spoke, it becomes the Bible. It's inspired. It's inerrant. In all seriousness, think about it. How would you like to sit down and listen to Jesus teach? Like every word, even his pauses, his eye contact. Like, would you take notes or would you just soak it in? I don't know which I do. And think about the places that he taught. Like, this is that dimension of Jesus. He taught in boats. He taught on shores. He taught in houses, synagogues, on hillsides. He taught in gardens and upper rooms. Jesus taught everywhere because the teaching was the core of his ministry. It's hard to argue with this dimension of Jesus. And by the way, even intelligent, non-Christian, intelligent, non-Christian, smart guys get it. Even the ones that don't really follow Jesus, like this guy. Do you realize he wasn't tied to Jesus at all? He wasn't interested in Jesus, but Einstein did make this observation. I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one reads the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates as in everywhere. No myth is filled with such life. No one can deny the fact that Jesus existed. How about this? Nor that his sayings, his teachings are beautiful. Or how about a famous, another famous non-Christian first century historian? Josephus had this to say about Jesus. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people that accept truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. So guess what? If you look closely at that quote, that is another non-Christian first century author, a historian that's saying the same thing as Mark about the teachings of Jesus. But let's ask a question. On behalf of this dimension of the depth of Jesus, what was the significance of his teaching? Well, let me tell you this. Jesus walked into a world just like ours. There was a ton of confusion on behalf of who God is. I mean, you think about it. When you read the gospel accounts, you find out, okay, if you were rich, you were blessed by God. If you were poor, you were cursed by God. If you were sick, it's because your parents sinned. Just read John 9. The religious taught if you weren't a Jew, God didn't love you. There was so much confusion on who God is that Jesus shows up, Right? Jesus shows up and teaches because the religious taught that. The religious taught this. Not only that, but, but they lived this. And so there's all this confusion. Let me tell you why Jesus taught. The teaching of Jesus cleared up the confusion about God. That was his goal. It's the same reason that you and I open the Bible today. Jesus made it clear on who God is and how much God loves. So on behalf of this week, the depth of Jesus you got to understand what he taught. Secondly, I want you to think about this. Why he heals. Look in verse 3, same chapter. 
Some men came into this house, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get to him because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Skip a few verses down. You're going to see the result of what happens on behalf of the healing of Jesus. Verse 11, I tell you, Jesus said, take your mat, go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everybody and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Now, on behalf of why Jesus healed, I need you to listen because this is where it gets harder for some of you in the room to believe because these miraculous healings are an obstacle for you. So I want to say a few things about the healing of Jesus. I want you to consider this. Ready? Number one, we have historical evidence to support that Jesus actually performed these kinds of healings. Some of you say, well, but there's no way I can see it. I go, my eyes, it, it happened in the first century. Yeah, you won't get to see it. But you can examine the historical evidence. On the flip side of Jesus, let me tell you about another first century historical figure. He also lived in Galilee. His name was Hanina. Anybody ever heard of Hanina? Would you please lift your hand if you have? Look around. No one. This figure was said to perform miraculous healings just like Jesus. You know how many sources we have about him? One. Guess how long it was written after his life? 130 years. That's why people disregard it. One source, 130 years later, no eyewitnesses. But what about Jesus and all of his healings? You ready for this? We have three sources within a 20-year window of the life of Jesus. Let's take it further. We have eight verified sources within a 60-year window of the life of Jesus. That means within a 60-year time frame, there are still eyewitness accounts. We have eight of them documented in a 60-year time frame. No wonder it's verified. This is the type of documentation that you must have with historical evidence on the healings of Jesus. So that means you don't have to be a professional historian to understand the historical evidence on behalf of Jesus pretty strong. And say, okay, Tim, I get that. Let's take it further. Okay, well, let me tell you what else you have to consider. You're going to have to decide whether or not you think there is a creator behind the laws of nature. Because if you think the laws of nature are coincidence or an accident, there is no amount of evidence that will convince you that the miracles and healings of Jesus took place. But if you think there is a creator, there's a mind at work behind the rational laws of the universe. If you think that, then you should be able to think this. Consider the creator could work through, within, and even beyond the laws of nature to perform a miracle. So back to this historical evidence on his healings. Eight verifiable documents, historical documents in a 60-year window. That means eyewitnesses are still around. People that were willing to die for what they saw, not just what they believe. Lots of people die for what they believe. These people were willing to die for what they saw. And it was all about the healings from one historical figure, Jesus. Quick question. Earlier we asked, why did he teach? Let's ask this question. Well, why did Jesus perform Miracles. You realize the miracles were not his number one goal. The reason Jesus performed miracles, ready? To validate his teaching. How else would they know about who he is and God unless he taught? 
And what caused people to show up and say, man, that teaching's got to be right, is he's performing miracle after miracle after miracle. So, on behalf of the depths of Jesus, consider this, what he taught. And the reason he taught, to clear up all the confusion about God. You know, why he healed? Well, to validate his teaching. That's why you see everywhere the crowd shows up. Let's look at the third dimension. It's starting to get more and more uncomfortable for those in the room. Not just what he taught, not just why he healed, but now I want you to consider how he forgives. Really? Uh, those are the exact words that some ask. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, meaning the guys that brought their friend down, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does he talk like that? He's blaspheming. Here's their statement. No one can forgive sins but God alone. No human being has the right to forgive sins. Not even the high priest in Jerusalem temple can forgive sins. So Jesus responds, verse 9. All right, guys, which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? Jesus knows that the critics are making a statement. It's easy to claim to forgive sins. After all, if he's forgiven, it's invisible. No one will know. Nothing happens. It's not like when he's forgiven, all of a sudden this guy's going to start glowing. Their words, talk is cheap, Jesus. So Jesus says, okay, let me do the visible thing. I'll physically heal him. So you'll know I can do the invisible thing. I can forgive him. Verse 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Let me show you. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. So he got up, took his mat out, and he walked out in full view of them all. Do you realize this is Jesus in this one section, teaching, healing, and the forgiveness of sins, all three dimensions, all three layers, the depth of Jesus are right here. That means this man, because of this verse, would wake up every morning for the rest of his life because of Jesus' statement, your sins are forgiven, knowing I've been forgiven of all sin every morning. Can I tell you something? Our culture struggles with the concept of sin. We know we sin, but our culture will never embrace a system that condemns us. Our culture thinks we're innately good. Culture thinks we're getting better. Uh, let me tell you a little secret about me. If I woke up tomorrow morning, looked myself in the mirror and said, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. By 9 a.m., there would be so much evidence that I'm not good, it's ridiculous. Like kick the dog, cuss the dog, yell at Jenny, honk the horn. Like you guys would know by 9 a.m., Tim is not innately good. It's why the world needs forgiveness. And let me show you why the channel that Jesus used on behalf of this man to receive forgiveness. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw his faith... He said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. The reason the forgiveness of God is such a big deal, by grace you are saved. By grace you and I are forgiven. And it has nothing to do with your works. Understand it's through faith. So let's do a brief recap on the depth of Jesus. Number one, what he taught. Number two, you think about it, why he healed. Number three, how could he forgive? Number four, 
Jesus is God. Back to the critics. Look at verse 6. At least they embraced good theology, right? But you'll see their good theology was still an obstacle because their human reasoning collides with the depth of Jesus. Verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does he talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's good theology, right? Nod your head because it is. Sins are what we do against God, they're thinking. How can Jesus say, my sins are forgiven, or his sins are forgiven, or their sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive. It's like this. Let's say Jonathan Phillips, up here leading worship, somehow, conveniently enough, finds a way to steal your phone after the service. You are ticked. You find out Jonathan stole it. You confront him. He's caught. He admits it. He asks for forgiveness. Forgiveness. We go outside and I'm watching. There is an argument between the two of you. What would it look like if I walk up and interrupt the argument and say, Hey, Jonathan, I forgive you. You'd make a statement. What right does Tim have to forgive Jonathan? What Jonathan did was wrong against me. So back to the critics in the text. If our sins are against God, what right does Jesus have to forgive sins unless... Jesus is God. And instead of backpedaling his way out of this conversation with the critics, instead of Jesus saying, oh, I gave the wrong impression, no, he turns up the volume. Verse number 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man, authority, let's look at both of those. First, let's look at authority. The word authority, the Greek word is exousia. It's not power, dunamis. It's exousia. Let me tell you what exousia looks like. You get on a plane. Let's say you make a trip somewhere. Let's say there is a small stewardess. Can she toss you off the plane? Yeah. Does she use dunamis power? No. Not going to work. She uses exousia, authority. She got the authority to toss you off the plane. Jesus is saying, I got authority from the Father. And notice his words. How in the world could Jesus declare someone forgiven? He has authority, and it's his favorite title he uses right here on behalf of himself, Son of Man. It only shows up two times in the Old Testament, meaning two times in the first part of the Bible, the first part of that larger conversation, the backstory. And I want you to look at one of those times that Son of Man is used in the Old Testament. It's when Daniel gets a glimpse of the end of ages. Daniel 7 verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Guess what? Only God is described as coming from the clouds. He continues, this Son of Man was given authority, exousia, glory and sovereign power. All nations, all peoples of every language, what did they do? They worshiped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Authority, all of it given to the Son of Man. Worship, adoration. Son of Man. God himself, Jesus is God. 
Matthew 16, one day Jesus is walking with the disciples and he asked them a question. He said, hey guys, what do people say? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Guys start speaking up. Well, some say on behalf of the first part of the conversation in the Old Testament, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say this prophet, that prophet. Jesus says, all right, who do you say I am? And Peter you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. What did Jesus say to Peter? Hey, Peter, blessed are you. You didn't figure this out on your own. Your high school GPA was 2.6667 repeating. God revealed this to you. What would Jesus later say in Mark 10? He said, to prove that I am God, there's a reason I came. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Ready? And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the day God died. And Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, and he pulled it off. So on behalf of Mark 2, on behalf of the depth of Jesus, I want you to consider a few things. What he taught was truth to clear up the confusion. That may deal with your obstacle. Why he healed? Well, to validate the truth that he taught. How could he forgive? Like only God can forgive. Well, Jesus is God. You ready? Claiming to be God is easy. Backing it up is next level. And so there is no room for mild approval. But according to C.S. Lewis, there's plenty of room for adoration. In the words of Daniel, worship. Today with heads bowed and eyes closed. I know you got obstacles. They're legit. I get it. They're real. It's valid. You can try to tackle everyone and then finally decide to follow Jesus. Or on a day like today, you can sit and soak the truth about the depth of Jesus. His teachings, his healings, his forgiveness. The fact that Jesus is God, you can soak it in and decide to step and embrace it. And slowly you'll find those obstacles start to shrink. You can carry them with you. And over time, those obstacles aren't significant anymore. What, what, what must happen for that to take place? Well, simple. You got to come to a point like Jesus said. You got to change your mind and trust. Bible word is repent and believe. Change your mind about you. You know you're a sinner. You are not innately good. You are not getting better. You need a Savior. His name is Jesus. Think for a second about what took place in Mark 2. Really, there are four different characters in the story that are impacted. The crowd was amazed. Jesus was worshipped. This crippled man was forgiven and healed. But there's only one group that got nothing. And it was the critics. Those that insisted, dang, I got to use rational thought. Doesn't make sense. My thinking collides with the depth of Jesus. 
I can't trust them. And from that moment forward, they started planning this crucifixion. I want to tell you, if you embrace the teaching, the life, the depth, the way of Jesus, over time, your rational obstacles start to shrink. But it comes in surrendering your life to him. That means it comes in surrendering your life to man's perfect God and God's perfect man. His name is Jesus. Father, today, the only proper response that we can have in this room to the depth of Jesus is exactly what Daniel speaks of. Adoration and worship. As we come to the end of the service, this is a time for maybe some to sing as an act of worship. Some in this room to change the way they think as an act of worship. Some to... Take a step and to have a conversation as an act of worship to move in the direction of Jesus. God, may we never forget on on days like this, this is an opportunity as we sing to even give gifts in the name of Jesus, which is an act of worship. And so, Father, for those in this room that have a chance to give in this moment, I pray if it's in any manner they would attach words to the gift, As they give and say, look, I'm even following you with my finances, Jesus. The only logical response is worship. And so as we come to the end, Father, I pray as you look at the hearts and minds of every person in this seat, in this room. I pray that what's at stake, we would realize, is a heart filled with worship. And I pray this in Jesus' name.